Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as one of the three pastors here. And uh, we've been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John. <clears throat> this morning, so whenever I do an expository series like preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible, the tension is that if I do it the way I want to do it, the way my study leads me to do it, at the thoroughness, the depth, this series would be, I think maybe, I think uh, uh, Boyce, Dr. Boyce in Philadelphia, when he was alive, he preached something like 10 years on the Gospel of John. Some sermons are just one word. That's how rich this Gospel is. I don't think any of us would survive that. So in, in the service of keeping things somewhat moving along, uh, today I'm going to cover all of chapter 9 in one message. And that is, any preacher will tell you that's an impossible task if you want to do it well and thoroughly. So I'm going to really focus in on some very specific parts of this passage, and I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will touch your heart to read this again and explore some of the other aspects of the passage I'm not going to touch on. So I think the best way to do that is to give God's word priority by just reading it for you while you listen. I'm going to read all of John chapter 9 because I, it's such a narrative. It reads like a story. And I think as you listen, as you follow along, uh, it's going to be remarkable how much it, it does feel like just a story in a person's life. There's such a humanness to this account. And so we're going to look, and by the way, the title of the message is, Now I See. Oh, Sorry. Is there any way to get this confidence monitor turned on? It's, uh, I'm not sure. Is it? I think I did something. Okay. Thank you. And we're going to look at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, which is really just the whole chapter. Here's what it says. As he went along, and as I'm reading, if, you want to, if you're a visual person, you need to read the words. You can do that. If you're not, if you're more of an auditory person, then just keep your eyes um, closed if you want and just listen to the story unfold. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? 
Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. By the way, I think this guy feels very much like Eugene feels I want everyone to ask him how he ended up with a boot on his foot. Ask him one at a time so he has to tell the story like 180 times. I think that's how this guy feels because everybody keeps asking him the same thing. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind But now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. 
Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Years ago, I would say maybe 15 years ago, in the early part of my time here at Harvest, I went to speak at a retreat. And normally as a retreat speaker, I speak, I talk to a few people, and then uh, hang out in my room and wait for the next message. But at this particular retreat, I just felt led to participate, to be with the congregation at everything. And they did this exercise um, that the leaders wanted to do because they had some people with disabilities at their church, and they wanted to raise sensitivity and awareness in their congregation about what it's like to be disabled. So during free time, this is gutsy, okay? During precious free time, for one hour, they asked everyone in the church to pick one of three disabilities and take on a certain kind of, uh, of, uh, of disablement for that hour. You could either wear foam earplugs and, and not speak for one solid hour to mimic deafness, or you could wear a blindfold to experience blindness, or you could have ropes tied around your legs and be unable to walk anywhere on your own for one hour. I chose blindness, and I put on this thick, I could, I've never seen this kind of a thick, uh, I don't know where they got these things, but I put on, I was blind, man, I just couldn't see a thing. And for the first five minutes, like, this is so weird, and I can't imagine. And then the novelty wore off, and I had 55 more minutes of not being able to see anything. And I was surprised at how deeply affected I was by this one hour of having my sight taken away from me. I made the mistake, and by the way, this was not a mandatory thing. Uh, they did this as an optional thing, and I would say about half the congregation decided to participate. I made the mistake of being blind near the gym. <clears throat> and I could hear the squeak of gym shoes and the sound of a basketball being dribbled, and I realized how much it stinks not to be able to see. I realized it didn't just mean I couldn't see art and beauty, I couldn't read, but I... It, completely controlled my movements, my freedom, my awareness of my surroundings. I'm a visual person, so I can't imagine what it's like to be born into the world with eyes that don't work and be robbed of such a life-giving part of human life. The human experience is built on seeing, and if you can't see, you're missing out on so much. Yes, this is a fallen world. It's scarred by sin, but there is so much worth seeing even in this broken world. I can't imagine what it would be like to not know what my own face looked like, not to know the face of my parents and my spouse and children, to not know what colors look like. And this man, all his life, had walked every day without the experience of seeing anything but darkness. Now, in addition to the emotional impact of all of this, Blindness came in Jesus' day with a very severe economic impact. If you, weren't, if you couldn't see, you couldn't work. And unless you happen to be the blind son or daughter of a very wealthy set of parents, you were in a very bad way. To be born blind was to be born into poverty. 
And in this day and age, I don't know if we're doing that much better. According to the National Federation of the Blind, citing some research by Cornell University, what they found was still today around 70% of all blind adults aged 21 to 64 who are blind but not in an institution for the blind, 70% of them are unemployed even today. So to be blind is not just stifling to the human spirit. It means you can't participate in the world, you can't contribute, and you can't earn a living to get the dignity of taking care of yourself. In other words, you are in for a lifetime of struggle, and for all your days, you will be dependent on the help and kindness of other people. Now, each person gets only one turn to live on this earth. And for this man, that one turn turned out to be a huge, unending disappointment. And so we find Jesus walking along, and he runs into this man. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever walked down, like our family goes to Chicago, and we really only see two parts of Chicago. We see the north side where all the restaurants are, and we see the Magnificent Mile. That's the whole city to me when I go in with my my kids. And if you walk down Michigan Avenue, you will walk past so many people who are asking for money that after a while, even if you are a sensitive person, they just start to blur in the background. That's just how hard our hearts are, I know. But after a while, you just see so many of them, you don't take notice of each one. You don't pause while you're talking to your family to wonder, what's their story? You'd be overwhelmed. You could hardly go a block without stopping and wondering. And yet Jesus, and this is what I think makes Jesus so attractive, is for all the heavy things he was bearing, all the stress he would have to carry, the importance of everything he had to do in the short time he had on earth, and yet he kept seeing people. That's one of the traits of Jesus I most admire and want to emulate, is that he didn't ever really just walk past people. There's no such thing as human scenery to him. He walks past this man and he stops, and it says right there in the very first line, as he went along, he saw a man. He saw a man, and that man happened to be blind from birth. But that's important. He saw a man. What did his disciples see, though? They saw an opportunity to explore a theological question. They saw a human being who would now be an object lesson. Oh, here's a good one. Lord, here's a guy, and I don't know how Jesus knew. He's omniscient, so he knew somehow he was born blind. And and they say, well, think about this, Jesus. How is a person born? Doesn't that just seem grotesquely unfair? Who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind? Now, how could it be this man? I mean, if he was born blind, that means he had a sin while he was a zygote, a fetus. I I don't know how you sin as an unborn baby. Maybe you kicked your mom a little too hard. But it's, it's a weird way of thinking. They didn't see him. They saw an opportunity to learn something about him. And the reason they had this point of view was because it was a very common Jewish belief in those days that there was a very distorted linkage between suffering and sin. The Jews believed that whenever you saw someone suffering, it was because 
It was God's way of giving them something they deserved. They had done something, or if they hadn't, then their parents had. It was based on passages like Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Listen to what it says. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. For many years, I misunderstood the meaning of these verses. When God said these words, he wasn't saying something about specific people. He was talking to the nation at a national level. What he was saying to the people of Israel at that time is, be careful how you live as a generation because the choices you make now will lead to either blessings or curses for the generations to follow. If you do not acknowledge me and straighten your path, there will be something to pay for the generations to come who will live in the world you created, who will inherit the legacy you left behind. We know that what God did not intend to say was that if a man sins, if a woman sins, their children are cursed because of that. I know this in part because of verses like Deuteronomy 24, 16, where in the law of Moses it says, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sins. In other words, God is no fool. He acknowledges that each person is accountable for their own actions, and the consequences that come are the result of their own actions. You can blame your folks for a lot of things, but in the end, God will treat us and deal with us on the basis of our own guilt or innocence. And yet these disciples of Jesus wanted to know, how does a guy end up being born blind? We can understand a man doing something terrible, and then God puts out his eyes so he'll stop sinning. But how can you make a baby come into the world born blind? Jesus emphatically denies that there's anything in this man's story related to sin in particular. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. That's not what this suffering is about. This suffering happened... Precisely for this moment so that the work of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus says the reason that God permitted this suffering to mark this man's whole life was not to punish him for his misdeeds or the misdeeds of his parents. But because in his life, in this moment, the greatest glory would be revealed. And he himself would benefit tremendously from it. Now, a lot of people read that, and I understand this, they're deeply offended by the logic of God. How is that fair, God? If you want to do that kind of glorification of yourself, pick someone else. I don't want to live my whole life burdened by a handicap, a disability that robs me of human life, Just so one day when I'm an adult, after a lifetime of misery and hopelessness, you get to show up one day and go, ta-da! Hey, you can see again. Thanks a lot. 
So that's the way some people read the story, is they see that God somehow is very selfish and very unfair. But let me just remind you of something important. Human suffering is an inescapable part of life in this messed up world. Even if you choose to acknowledge there is no God, even if you are a diehard atheist who thinks God is an invention of weak-minded people, you will not dodge human suffering. You cannot make it go away. You cannot whisk it out of existence. Human suffering is here whether you acknowledge God or not. Can we at least agree on that? Do you think atheists live in a, a paradise where no one suffers because there's no God to blame, there's no God to turn to? For atheists, life is all unicorns and butterflies and lollipops. No! You can deny God all you want, but you cannot erase the reality that life here, for so much of it, is painful. There's not one human life that fully escapes the sting of suffering. That is what it means to be alive here. If you're young, you may not have suffered as much as you're going to suffer, but if you're older, you know there's no way to dodge it. If human suffering is an inescapable part of life. God is the only ray of light that makes any difference. Apart from God, human suffering has no meaning. It is just suffering. If you're an atheist, who do you even get mad at? Stupid random chance! Darn cold, faceless universe. You can't even be mad because nothing is even offended by your anger. There's no one to blame. There's nothing but just us atoms. But if you live in a world where there is a God, he doesn't magically whisk away suffering, but what he says is, apart from me, suffering would have no value, no meaning, no purpose, but because of me, in the face of the worst kind of suffering, I can produce new life. I can produce joy and gratitude and wonder out of the very place where most people would see only misery. Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. What an interesting analogy, considering that the man he was talking to had never seen light in all his days. And then, if we're honest, he does something really disgusting. He hocks a loogie, puts it on the ground, he mixes it. I, I'm, I don't know about you, but I, I get a little cringy because I'm, I'm a little, you know, I, I'm a little OCD germophobic, and I don't know if I would enjoy having that smeared on my eyes, but he does it. And it's important to acknowledge that the healing of this man's blindness did not come from the mud, and it did not come from the man's obedience. It came entirely from the will and authority and the power of Jesus. And he puts his mud on, and then he tells this blind guy, hey, we're over by the temple right now, but I want you to walk all the way over to the pool of Siloam, which is an, a, not an easy journey for anyone, but for a blind guy, that's a pretty long walk. And he says this to him, and to my great surprise, this blind dude, who all his life had only known a fading hope, I mean, this is his normal. I see nothing. But somehow, for some reason, the stranger comes up, spits, makes mud, puts it on his ankle, now go wash in the pool, and he goes. Why? 
Why does he go? Why does he walk? I would just be like, don't, that's disgusting, dude. Seriously. Who told you you can do that? Just because I'm blind, you can't take advantage of me. I don't know what you would have said in that situation. But for some inexplicable reason, this guy goes to the pool to wash. And I thought a lot this week about why he walked that long walk to the pool. I think it's because when he heard Jesus' voice, when he felt Jesus' touch, God did something mysterious in his spirit that says, this man is your hope. This man is no ordinary man. You've had other people be kind to you. You've had other people speak words of hope to you. But this man is different. He is God. You can trust him. For some reason, when people encounter Jesus at the right moment, at the right time in their lives, God does a mysterious thing and he changes their heart so that for that moment, they are able to perceive in Jesus someone who earns their faith and their hope. I experienced that firsthand in the August of 1984, the day I got saved. I was 16. And I didn't know God in a personal way. Jesus was not yet my Savior, but I had heard of him for 16 straight years of my life. 17, if you, if you count all the hymns my mother sang while I was in the womb. All the times my paternal grandmother read the Bible with her lips against my mom's belly, just saying, this is the word of God. I, I heard about Jesus all my earthly existence, and I never saw him. It never touched my heart to trust him with anything, to believe that he was real or that he was God. And then one day in Deerfield, he did it. I can't explain it. I can't look inward and go, why did I trust that day? It had nothing to do with me. I was a complete flake of a teenager at that time. None of you would want to be my friend. And then that day, he shifts something inside, and I see Jesus, and I can't unsee what I see. The reason this man walked that long walk to the pool was because the first blindness God takes away is the inability to see Jesus. And that day, before he could ever see the light of day, he saw the truth about Jesus Christ supernaturally. That was the first gift God gave him. I don't know if you've ever been there at the moment that someone else sees Jesus truly. As a pastor, it's been my privilege to be there several dozen times now at the precise moment that a human being passes from death to life. It is one of the greatest, highest privileges of human life to be present with another person at the moment they turn their heart over to Jesus Christ. You can see it. I've been watching these videos all week to prepare for this message. I'm on YouTube watching videos about people who are deaf and get cochlear implants and can hear for the first time. And you know why I keep watching these videos is because that moment... The look in their eyes, from infants all the way to older folks who you turn, and the, 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 the technician goes, can you hear something now? The audiologist is talking all the time. All of a sudden, you see it in their eyes. You go, oh. And then what happens next is invariable, the same every time. The tears begin to come. And they are tears of joy, wonder, 
gratitude. They can't stop. Even the tough guys who are trying so hard not to cry, they break down and they just, there's so much raw emotion. I've been there in moments when a person sees Jesus that way. I lived through my own moment and forever I was changed by it. I want you to think about this moment for this man. It goes down in history as a lesson for us about the power and authority of Jesus. About the relationship between suffering and sin. But for this specific human being in time and space, it was the most remarkable day of his life. I wish I could have been there when he took his face out of the water and he saw what blue looks like. He saw his own reflection for the first time in the surface of the pool. That is an amazing moment. And it's important that we have that moment with him. If you haven't, I urge you to beg God to give you the gift of removing your blindness and letting you see Jesus for who he really is. A lot of people see in this man's story just injustice and unfairness, unnecessary suffering. But Jesus took a man who probably would never have asked to have been born. If he could know the life he would have, I will bet you as a fetus he would say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm just going to blip out of existence. I don't want to go through 30 years of that. I'm sure if you told his parents Do you know that this is going to be the fate of your child? Your firstborn son will never give you fortune and fame and reputation. He will be a burden to society and a drain on your finances. He will be a cause of shame and isolation for your family. I think they would have made a decision to go tumbling down a set of stairs. They probably would have visited Planned Parenthood Jerusalem and chosen to terminate this unnecessary suffering called the human life. And yet, into this story of misery, Jesus introduces the height of joy and wonder. I'm going to tell you that if you took this man's whole graph of his life experiences, his lowest lows and his highest highs, if you took away his blindness and you took away that moment when Jesus made him see, you would have robbed him of the highest moment of wonder and joy and thankfulness that he ever experienced in his whole life. Who wants to go watch a movie about this? Imagine if I was pitching you, your Hollywood studio executives. I'm like, I got a great idea for a movie. There's this really tall, athletic, beautiful person who's born wealthy and everything goes his way and then more really good stuff happens to him. Who wants to go see that movie? Maybe to throw stuff at the screen, but that's not a story. Will that person experience the heights of wonder and gratitude? Nobody likes suffering. I don't. I'm not a glutton for punishment. But it's often because of suffering that our eyes are finally open to what gratitude and joy and the love of God and others really looks like. Now, I've never preached on this topic, and this is not the centerpiece of my message, but I feel like I need to pause and take a little diversion here. Not too much of a departure from the message, but I need to say something about abortion. 
I've never talked about it at this church. And it's time. Because I believe that for many of us, if we knew that this baby in our womb would have this fate, we'd be sorely tempted to spare him and ourselves a lifetime of struggle. And I understand it. Just as human beings, that is not such a stretch of the imagination. You could even frame it as an act of mercy, kindness, deliverance. And yet, because he was born, and because he suffered for a lifetime, God's amazing grace was put on display and recorded for thousands of years in his life. Two thousand fifteen is the last year we have good statistics for this, but the Centers for Disease Control report that just under six hundred and forty thousand pregnancies are legally terminated in the United States each year. Those are just the reported ones that happen in sanctioned clinics. That amounts to 1,748 babies who will never live every single day that we wake up and go to bed. It might surprise you to discover that we're not even making a dent in the global numbers. I thought the United States would lead the world in abortions. We're lagging. Globally, it's 56 million abortions every year. You know what a humanitarian tragedy the earthquake in Haiti was, where some 150 to 200,000 people perished. Those numbers tell us that every day, around 153,000 babies never get to breathe or live or exist. And the primary motive behind that choice to terminate the pregnancy is to spare the baby or the parents or both of the experience of human suffering. And I understand it as a fellow human being. I don't stand in judgment over anybody who has had to face that and succumbed. And apart from Jesus, apart from the power of God, abortion is the sanest thing to do. Because what meaning or value could we possibly find in a story of lifelong suffering? But where there is Jesus, even a lifetime of suffering could become a story of joy and deliverance and grace. The New York Times cited a study by the National Opinion Research Center, what they said was 70% of Americans said they believe that women should be able to obtain a legal abortion if there is a strong chance of a serious defect in the baby. Let me tell you, I know it's dangerous to preach on this because there's not one person in this room who has a neutral opinion about this subject. Not one. Some of you are like, I thought I could stay at this church, but, well, there, there that goes. Some of you are like, it's about time this liberal finally said something. <laughs> There's no winning today on the political spectrum. 
Today, in our temperance, in, in, our, in our climate in this country, you're in every room a winner with half and a loser with half. There is no talking. There's no reason. I don't believe abortion is primarily a human issue, a women's issue, a freedom's issue. I think it's primarily a moral issue. And as such, we must be guided in where we land, not by the exigencies of our human condition, not by our views about what our enablements and rights are as people, but if there is a God and he is the author of life, I believe he must dictate for us where we land on this issue. That's not politically safe to say. I may not see some of you again next Sunday. For that, I would grieve if that's enough to tear us apart from one another. If you have had a painful history with this topic, if it's one of your defining regrets or it's a source of great anger for you for whatever reason in your personal story, I don't want to be insensitive about that at all. My goal is not to make you feel horrible or regretful or even to pick at old scabs and hurts. But it's to say that Despair over suffering carries with it a high price tag in human life. 56 million is on a par with how many soldiers and civilians died, possibly, in World War II. And that's happening every year. And it's happening largely because we cannot understand that there could ever be any meaning or value in human suffering. Wesley Smith, a, an American attorney and columnist, wrote in the Weekly Standard, with the development of prenatal genetic diagnosis, the drive toward eugenics has returned with a vengeance. Americans may heartily cheer participants in the Special Olympics, but here's our hypocrisy. We abort some 90% of all gestating infants with genetic disabilities such as Down syndrome, dwarfism, and spina bifida. The very kids we protect from bullies at school, the very people we cheer in the Special Olympics, we are killing by the thousands before they ever get to breathe. I don't know how to reconcile such a strange juxtaposition of convictions. My goal is not to make a political statement or a philosophical statement. It is to make a moral one. That our God is the author of life, and that even if that life is wrapped up in misery and suffering, still he can touch that story. Still he can have glory. Still he can bring hope in the midst of the worst kind of misery. I have had personal friends from all over the world who rose out of the ashes of some of the worst kinds of suffering and trauma you can imagine. And their lives are beautiful to behold. And the thing that made a difference was their encounter with Jesus Christ, the giver of life. You know, I was really deeply moved this week reading something written by Pastor John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem, Baptist Church in Minneapolis, they began to see that many, many people were coming to their church with disabilities or with children who had disabilities. So they began 
and, and started with two of the dads whose children were very disabled. And they had a heart for this, and so they formed a ministry. And here is their original vision statement, which stirs my heart. Our vision is that Bethlehem would display the supremacy of God in disability and suffering. We want our lives to reflect an unshakable joy in the Lord that allows us to embrace a life of suffering in disability for his purpose and glory. This sentence just grabbed hold of my heart. We want to shout that life with a disability and with Jesus is infinitely better than a healthy body without him. We say with Paul that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Misery is so easy to see. Hope is much harder. Hope has a name. Hope has a face. Hope is Jesus Christ. And apart from him, suffering has no meaning, no value. It just destroys the human spirit. This story, this encounter teaches us that even after a lifetime of disappointment and struggle and fading hope, one encounter with Jesus can change your entire life. I know for many of us, that is our story. He has changed everything. And I know for some of us in this room, that has never happened. And I long for each person in our church to have that encounter with Jesus. I'll close with this. I think the greatest tragedy in this whole story is the spiritual blindness of the leaders of Israel. The very people who are supposed to recognize God on the move rejected God and the people he touched. They called Jesus a sinner. Jesus sees a man who had suffered all his life and with kindness he says, hey, it's not your sin that produces suffering. This is not your fault. Jesus is compassionate. And these men, these religious leaders, look at him and say, you were born a sinner. From your birth, you were dirty. Jesus finds him and then pursues him. And after he hears that he was kicked out of the synagogue, excommunicated, he goes in search of this man and finds him. Where the religious blind men of Jesus' day kicked him out, Jesus went after him and found him. I'm here to tell you that you may be someone in this room who doesn't know Jesus, and a big part of it is because people who represented Jesus deeply wounded you. They caused a hurt in you. People who went to church were leaders in church, maybe your parents, and yet nothing in their private lives showed you love and grace and kindness. There was only ever pressure and judgment and guilt and anger. And because people who are supposed to represent Jesus wounded your heart, you've been driven away. I'm here to tell you 
that even in Jesus' own day, those who were supposed to speak for him were blind to him and drove his people away. But Jesus himself is after you. He sees you. He knows you. Where others will reject you, he will always value you. He's the only one who will tell you in the midst of your misery, this is not because of your sin, but it's an opportunity for me to show glory in your life. Yes, it's true that our sin can produce consequences. Yes, it's true that at times our illness can be the direct consequence of sin. But the real purpose of our human suffering is that it drives us to the only one who cares. And he will always care. The church may have let you down in the worst kind of way. Your pastors, your leaders may have disappointed you. Your parents may be the source of some of your deepest pain. But Jesus can be trusted. And that is the first blindness I've been praying all week for him to take away from our church. Jesus is not caught up with all those who wounded you. He is the safest person you'll ever meet. He's the most loving, patient, and kind person you will ever meet. And one day, if you don't know him, he will do something in your heart and you will see. And you will trust him. Your heart will open. And you will see. That's our prayer. The greatest statement of truth in this whole long story comes out of the mouth of this simple, nameless man. There's a lot I don't know. But one thing I do know. I was blind. Now I see everything. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.